Support for Around with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Welcome back, faithful listeners. I'm Stevie Mata. I'm T. Cole Newton. And coming to you pre-recorded for my Mid-City Bar 12-Mile Limit, it's time for Around with Steve and Cole. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We're back at it here at Around with Stephen Cole after a brief Mardi Gras hiatus. Hope you all had a good one. This is T. Cole Newton. We're coming to you, as always, from my bar 12-mile limit. I am here with my lovable co-host, the Shadow King of New Orleans, Mr. Steve Yamada. Hey, everybody. It's great to be back. Um, Cole, what did you give up for Lent? I am... uh Let's just say that what I'm giving up isn't something I'm legally allowed to do anyway, so I'm just going <laughs> to refrain from mentioning it here on this public uh, venue. Great. Hunting endangered species. That's pretty cool. That's <laughs> yeah. good for the environment. I've decided to stop smuggling. Did you hear that a kid got arrested and is sentenced to six months in jail for smuggling a baby tiger into the United States? A baby tiger. Yeah. it was. I, I think it was just in his carry-on luggage. How far did the kid get with the baby tiger? I'm pretty sure he got caught at the airport. But got the tiger is now safe and at the San Diego Zoo. Okay. So great for the poor tiger, right? Taken out of the wild, now it's just living in the zoo for the rest of its life. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's probably worse. If <laughs> you were a wild animal, would you prefer to live in a zoo or just live out in the wild? I don't. I mean, I guess it depends on the how fragile the ecosystem is. Like if if I was if I like living in a an increasingly constrained natural space that just shrinks every year because of encroaching suburbia, maybe a zoo's a better option. I guess so. I'm going to go zoo all the way. I mean, like, I like Netflix and chilling out of my house. So that, I think that's kind of the equivalent for an animal. Just that's to, an invitation, know, ladies. Kind of hang out. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, if you're a panda, they're just going to like bring you pandas. It's like, you know, have sex and reproduce and we love you and take pictures of you and things like that. It's like, that's kind of cool, right? I guess. Yeah. I don't know. They seem to be fine. Yeah. Anyway, we've got a guest with us today. We're not just talking about endangered species smuggling. Hey, uh, would you like to introduce yourself, guest? Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Nick Dietrich uh, here in New Orleans from New Orleans. Are you are you from New Orleans originally? No, not not originally. I'm from uh, Bloomington, Indiana originally. So okay. go Hoosiers. Well, well yeah. Well, uh, let's let's just go into some backstory then. What brought you to New Orleans originally? Um. Well, I uh, went to school uh, at Indiana University in Bloomington and uh, grew up near there, um, and uh, wound up. Um, kind of, well, I got an English degree and, uh, kind of just, uh, kicked around town a little bit, worked as a bartender as I was getting the degree. What kind of bars did you work in while you were in college? Uh, let's see. I worked in, my first gig was working in a basement gay bar called Bullwinkles. <laughs> it was in the basement of an old moose lodge, hence the name. Okay. Um, and, uh, I also, uh, worked at a, uh, a jazz restaurant in an old train station, uh, shaking Manhattans and uh, making creamy drinks, um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I mean, kind of the same thing I was doing at Bullwinkles, I guess. Uh, and uh, your wife once told me that you were referred to by I think it was a guest at Cure as that ginger bear. 
did that moniker you, come down from your gay bar days, or is that a New Orleans that, original? That's a New Orleans uh, original. It was, I'm sure there were people yeah, who thought about. Yeah, it, it was that Ginger way. Baby Bear. Ginger Baby Bear. Oh, it's adorable. Ginger Baby Bear. <laughs> yep, yep. So that was the early days at Cure, and uh, oh, you didn't have a beard at that time, right? No, I didn't. I did. I, when I first started there, I had a silly mustache, though, mm. like a Tom Selleck. I was going to say Tom Selleck's not that silly. I was like yeah. silly mustache. But. In retrospect, most, most yeah. things were pretty silly for like me. Like a Dolly is a silly mustache. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a John Waters. That's a silly mustache. The pencil thin mustache. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's pretty silly. You pretty draw silly. that one in, like oh, uh, yeah, Professor yeah. X's eyebrows. <laughs> oh. Spoiler alert: Professor yeah. X has alopecia. <laughs> um, but so I, I was uh, working there and not really doing anything with my degree, and I was part of like an art collective that had a gallery that shut down. So. I ran, was running out of things to do, and then the, uh, a bunch of the kids that were in my program with me moved to New Orleans. Um, so I had never been. I kind of just followed them here and spent a couple days here and then went to Austin because I was going to check it out and potentially live there. But after I was in Austin for like two days, it was also during South by Southwest, so not a great representation <laughs> of the city. This uh, is great. I want to live here yeah. forever. <laughs> what a convenient uh, city. Yeah, but while I was there, I was like, I want to want to live in New Orleans. Went back, and they were like, well, we have we have a room. You're welcome to live here. So... So I wound up here, and that was like I moved here with like Matt Ray, who is now the beverage director at the Ace, and mm-hmm. uh, um, he's the only guy that's in the industry now. So <laughs> they've all moved on, mm-hmm. right on. So um, when you got to New Orleans, uh, jumping into the industry and everything, where do you first work at? Um, well, I first worked at uh, Commander's Palace mm. for um, yeah. several months. Look at this. You guys got a little tie <laughs> I, in I, right I, here. I didn't realize you were part of that. Com- where you were Commander's alum as well. Yeah. When when that was. What, like around 2010? No, it was probably late 2008, early 2009, like right when I got here. Oh, man. So Um, we were like ships in the night because I was like 2007, 2008. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so I think, I mean, it may not have been a, I think I got here in the very beginning of 2009. So I think it was like the first half of that year. And then I wound up uh, uh, working at Rick's on Bourbon Street, um, left there. And managed a coffee shop that's uh, uh, that was on Carondelet and Clio that's no longer there. Mayorapas is there now. Hmm. Uh, and then went back to Rick's before I started a cure. Okay. And that's kind of interesting, too, because I feel like, if I'm not mistaken, there were several bartenders or people who, like, came out of Rick's who, like, you know, went on to do, like, fancier things. Well, yeah. I mean, at the time, I... So before I came on there, uh, they had tried to turn the VIP lounge at Rick's Cabaret into a craft cocktail bar. <laughs> right. It was going to be like a members-only cocktail right, lounge, right? Right, Um And they brought in Kirk uh, mm-hmm. Estopinol from uh, from Curco to... Um, this was before he was at Curco, too, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. This, but he, he came in as a consultant and uh, set up a program, and he hired his buddy Turk Dietrich, who's now the GM at Cure. Your brother. There. Well, <laughs> <laughs> drop drop an eye on his name, and yeah, then we're brothers. Um but uh but yeah so they like had um a lot of spirits and a lot of people that got trained in that regard and uh Liam Deegan was there for a little bit too uh he he split his time between Rick Saloon and uh Scores okay Oh, good. You yeah. know, it's a, the casual job in the fancy shop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. I think um, there's a weird lineage going back to Rick's. I think uh, you, you did say Nathan Dalton, right? Uh, well, he never worked there, but his wife uh, right. was a manager there. That's she, right. Like when I started working there, I actually started there as a bar back and she was a bartender. And then at the end, uh, she was 
one of the managers. Mm. Yeah. This is my call to action. It's time to go back to Bourbon Street. Support the strippers. Support the strip clubs. Like, we need to leave these fancy cocktail lounges and go back to the strip clubs. Here, here. Yeah. I also think that well, we, we, start, we need to, to reform some of those state laws, though, that will allow strippers to once again touch their own breasts on stage mm. and some of these other uh, sort of arcane restrictions. If I'm bartending at Rick's, can I touch my own breasts behind the stage? Well, I'm a man, so the state uh, doesn't care about I could, yeah, Your, your nipples are, right? are not offensive to me at all. Sweet. It's, it's only lady nipples. Right. A super <laughs> offensive lady nipples. Exactly. <laughs> I have a friend uh, for, from camp who posted a picture of herself online, topless, but she she cut out pictures of men's nipples and put them over her nipples so it would be allowed and it worked apparently they didn't take down the picture but that just goes to show how arbitrary and capricious these laws are mm. <laughs> anyhow yeah strip clubs i'm for them oh yeah not my favorite thing in the world but you know well, more power to it i don't go to strip clubs a lot but i certainly think they should have the right to exist i don't go to a lot of places a lot but it's perfectly fine i don't go to church at all but you know i'm okay with churches being around I, sometimes I find churches, churches and more, strip clubs, the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, Everybody's got to worship somewhere. <laughs> oh. It's a tithe, right? <laughs> We'd yeah. like to thank our sponsors at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. So you were at uh, Rick's and you went from there. You followed. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I pretty much followed Turk over to, to Cure. St- started there as a bar back uh, right in the end of their first year open. Mm. Okay. You were one of the first apprentices I knew there. Um, where did you fall in the timeline for like um, the initial staff being there to when you were getting hired? Were you one of the first apprentices or the first apprentice? Well, I mean, technically, I think Max was one of the first apprentices mm-hmm. and maybe one other person that was there. Uh, but I came in um, and basically after I'd been working there for about a month, that's when Max put in his notice and was going to move uh, back to New York and yeah. Brooklyn. Um, and so that's when, uh, Billy Dollard and I, uh, sort of stepped up. And so like, we were this first apprentices that weren't on the opening staff, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, he and I went through the apprenticeship together, um, there in, that was 2010. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting too, because you would think that, um, like cure was going to set this model, like when they opened up to be like, you know, this is how we're going to like all places are going to be down here. And like, it's going to be about apprenticeship and learning the craft and everything. And definitely like, it's great. Cause they still, uh, adhere to their apprenticeship programs at all their establishments, but that is not a thing anywhere else. Like in the city at the moment, I can't think of another place that like really runs an apprenticeship. We do it latitude 29. Um, but, I mean, like, we're such a small staff over there. It's, like, never a time when we're like, oh, my gosh, we're looking for an apprentice at Latitude 29 at the moment. Yeah. I know that because uh, Amanda Thomas is leaving Revel. They're, mm-hmm. they're looking to replace her, and they advertise that position as an apprenticeship under under Chris. So, I, I, yeah, but it's all smaller programs. Like we, we here at 12 Mile, we'll, we'll, if we, if we want to hire somebody that doesn't have bartending experience, we'll just hire them as a bar back and then just slowly build out that knowledge base until they're ready to take bartending shifts. Uh, but it's not an official apprenticeship program. Yeah. It's just how you do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I am a big proponent of like regimented training, you know, having ideas, having goals that have to be achieved. And like, you know, I, I think that people glean a lot more from that. And like, you can really establish culture a little bit more. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of that. That's that's one of the things that I do. That's like my background when it comes to opening is a lot of training background and like coming up with different training programs and like, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, it's what I'm good at. But hmm. Yeah, we we do kind of the opposite here. We just sort of let people absorb 
through almost as osmosis as much as they can. And Mm. then the ones that have an interest in learning will express that interest and then we can train them up. And the ones that don't, that's fine because it's really hard to hire a good bar back. And I would love to just have somebody (laughs) who doesn't want to be a bartender, just want to polish glasses and bust tables. And my apprenticeship at, uh, at, at 12 mile limit. Walk in. It's comedy night. Hannibal Burr shows up. <laughs> yeah, that was your first show. It was Hannibal yeah. Burr's. That's like, good. Cole taught me how to open those cans of High Life really well. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we also go out of our way to have a, a particularly accessible bar program from both sides of the bar. Like, I want to be. I want guests to be able to walk in and not feel that sort of intimidation that you can all, often feel for the uninitiated when walking into a cocktail bar. Same with bartenders who don't have that kind of cocktail bar experience. I want you to be able to walk in. and within about a half hour, be able to make most of the drinks on the menu and work a shift, essentially. Yeah. You know, that's, it makes it plug and play. It's much easier to hire people that way, too. For you, Nick, what was your experience at the point when you started off at Cure and you were stepping up to, into the apprenticeship program? What was your familiarity with craft cocktails and with like the, the kind of products that they were using over there? Um, I mean, not not extensive at all. Uh, I, I think it was... Um, <clears throat> It came out. Of, I mean, I knew the mechanics of bartending after having worked in like dive bars and jazz clubs and strip clubs and all of that. Um, but at that point, I don't think I could have told you, like, I don't know the. Di- I don't think I could have broken down like what the difference between Scotch and bourbon and rye was at that mm. time. We're starting there, so I came in pretty green. Was there a product or was there a cocktail that you were really into when you started getting to it? That now you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was really into that. I'll, I'll lead off on this one, but creme de violette definitely because uh, Ted Haig's book was a big thing for me, and they make such a big a deal about how like you can't get creme de violette anymore, and like there's like three drinks in there with creme de violette, like it's the Aviation, the Blue Moon, and I think the Jupiter cocktail mm-hmm. and uh now i can't stand creme to feel it like i would leave it out of an aviation at this point just because it tastes like soap i i mean i i tried to put mustard in a lot of cocktails i remember <laughs> that you had a dune themed cocktail well, that, yeah that was there once that that was like that was a little bit out there that was like a rack and herb saint and uh Lime it. It was like a weird daiquiri. <laughs> right. It was a rack. <laughs> what was the name of that? The spice must flow. Spice must flow. Because <laughs> it had a rack in it. Yeah. And exactly. That <laughs> was good. I think. I mean, the whole point of cocktail culture, I think, is just to make puns, right? <laughs> I mean, that's why I got into it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how about you, Cole? I'm trying to think if there's anything that I used to really appreciate that I no longer do. Um. I can't, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that's like embarrassing that I used to enjoy. Nothing you nerded out on a whole bunch or, yeah, or I don't know. I leaned pretty heavily on, uh, on allspice dram for a while, but there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, and even violette, I think, you know, as long as you're using just a couple dashes in a drink, then it imparts a nice floral note that doesn't taste like shampoo. It's, it's coloring. It's <laughs> <laughs> part, partly. I'll use blue curacao. I'm good. <laughs> um, I think more, I think more. Bar programs should use just food coloring in their drinks. Mm. I mean, that's that's sort of an underappreciated. Well, that's what component. the butterfly pea is, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much just makes drinks purple. Just got to figure out the right acidity too. Yeah. It's like, ah, oh, it's blue. It's supposed to be purple. Now it's pink. What the hell? <laughs> it's changing color. I'm a wizard. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm also just a big proponent of just not being embarrassed about the things that you like. You're know, like, if you like Captain Morgan, drink Captain Morgan. I don't give a shit. Yeah, I don't think it's about being embarrassed, but I think like you know, you don't go back and say oh at 17 man i had great taste in things it's like you might have had great taste in things but i don't know i don't know about you guys but as 17 year old stevie mana just pretentious assholes like have you heard of stanley kubrick he's a very talented director uh he's made a lot of movies i've watched all his works it's like insufferable 17 year olds all 17 year olds are insufferable i haven't met one 
I don't hang around a lot of 17-year-olds to begin with, but I don't think I've met one who I've been like, okay, kid. <laughs> it's like I just want to throw them in a like at a dish pit for like a year and be like <laughs> just toughen up a little bit. <laughs> Does that make me a bully? I don't know. No, no. no? Go ahead Good. and say no. We'll okay. give you a pass here. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I'll work on that. I'll just <laughs> try and level. Do you that also just bit. trip them when they're carrying large piles of dishes to the dish? No, pit? more then, yeah, psychological more than anything yeah. else. My favorite at Cure that we did a lot uh, is we would cover Kirk's Jiggers and Saran Wrap. I've heard of this. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Restaurant pranks. You got any good ones, Cole? Oh, oh uh, empty out the hot water. Empty out the hot water. That's a classic. One. For those of you not in the industry, the uh, hot water towers that make coffee and things like that, uh, they're hooked to a water line. So you tell your trainee, it's like, hey, last thing you had to do tonight is empty out all the hot water from the water machine. I also yeah. enjoy a mop the walk-in freezer. That's a great one. <laughs> uh, somebody told me this on uh, some trip I was on, but uh, the uh, the espresso cake uh, chef's got oh, yeah. chef's got a, a special tonight. It's an espresso cake. So he wants all the servers to try it. So when uh, you're making espresso, you just flip the grounds over and make like a little brownie looking thing and put some whipped cream and like a piece of mint on it. That's mean. The restaurant industry <laughs> is super mean. <laughs> yeah. Change, guys. We're, we're we're striving for change in this industry. Uh, I've never been a big fan of pranks. Generally, it always just I, maybe I just have too much of a conscience. But every time April Fool's Day rolls around, I just like ah, oh, we're just gonna be mean to each other today. That's, hmm. Why? Why? Mischievous. Mischief. I get it that it's yeah. It's just like it's just good natured ribbing. It's like, but also it's just like it's just unnecessary cruelty. Hmm. I think internet culture has like pushed pranks up to a point where like you just can't have casual pranks. Like you have to go like above and beyond, you know. What's uh, what, what's a good example of above and beyond? Prank? I don't even know. It's like you know they have to bury you alive in a coffin, but like you were safe the whole time. You weren't actually in a coffin. You were just like you I think know. That's David Blaine. <laughs> he's, he's very mischievous, <laughs> talented. I won't say, but mischievous certainly. It's like some prankster demigod. It's like, go away how do i banish you do i say your name backwards or something and you'll disappear <laughs> okay so you were working at cure as an apprentice did they still uh yeah what we were talking about they still have an apprentice program but it, it's it's changed since then hasn't it what's the has, what's the, the has that what yeah how has that evolved over time we talked to neil about that with the first time it was on in season one but um, yeah i mean about it from an insider's point. i don't know i mean because i at you know at one point i went from uh, at one point, I was a bar manager over there, so I was overseeing the apprentices. Um, and it kind of, I think it's a lot more structured now than it was then. Um, I think it was sort of like in the beginning, at least when I went through it, it was sort of like, um, you know, you spent a lot of time with the senior staff there. You asked a lot of questions, all like most of your drinks were straw tasted. And then basically, there just got to a point where you could hang. And they were like, all right, you're, you're promoted. Um, now there's a little bit more pomp and circumstance of promotions and stuff mm. like that. Um, I mean, when I, when Canyon Table opened, we sort of adopted the same model, but it, like, before I, I stepped away from there, it became much more regimented. And our apprenticeship was like three weeks and about 60 hours. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, it, it, it differed a great deal from what I went through at Cure in that it was highly regimented. You knew there were, uh, you know, markers that you had to, to hit and everything like that. Yeah, there was a weird shift there as well, too. It's like when Cannon Table opened up, there was kind of this 
like change from like with Cure, like there were so many long tenured employees that were there. But it seems like right when Kane and Table opened up, like the turnover was much faster. Like yeah, there were we, more jobs. There was a lot of openings, so there was a lot of grasses greener and kind of things. Definitely. And we, I mean, we had a lot of people who just like moved out of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, a lot of we lost a lot of folks to Chicago, New York, but. You know, they Damn, all, Chicago, yeah, New York. <laughs> they all like kind of like took big steps. Like, you know, Scott Steerwalt is now with Cocktail Kingdom and Lush Life. Um, and, uh, Sam Perry, you know, she's, uh, working at Cindy's in Chicago now. And Dave Gonzalez, uh, uh, is GM of Violet Hour uh, up until yesterday, I think. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, nothing bad. I think he's moving somewhere else, but he wouldn't say where. Oh, well, it's very sneaky. <laughs> but yeah, so we had a lot of people that just, um, we hired a lot of young people too. Like mm-hmm. our staff was much younger than Cure was because we were downtown as well. Um, uptown, you know, we were getting a lot of people like that opening staff. A lot of those people were in their thirties at that point. Yeah. Um, and so it was just like people that were much more settled yep. and much more like content with where they were professionally and in their lives. And, and then at Canaan Table, we were hiring a lot of people in their young twenties, different that in that we're downtown, there's a different hiring pool. Um, and because of that, it, it did contribute to turnover. Let's, uh, we, we, we kind of skipped ahead a little bit. So you, uh, <laughs> you, you work your way up. You're an apprentice to Cure, then a full on bartender at Cure. Were you, uh, wh- at what point did you go over to management? Were you at Belloc at any point? Were you managing over there too? Yeah. If I remember correctly. Well, when, um, we talked be- a little bit about the, the how, how did the Belloc spinoff happen? That was the first, the new Cure Co. place. That was predates Cane and Table. And has since come and gone. You want to talk a little bit about the arc of Belloc and your role there? Yeah. So Belloc started, um, you know, that was uh, Kirk and Neil's project. And, and mainly like Kirk was the guy who sort of like built out what it was going to look like in in the uh, in the scope as far as like fortified wines and cobblers and the like. Um, and so when they when they were pretty far along with working on that, they came to Turk and I and asked us both to become managers at both Cure and Belloc when it opened. Um, so we would spend a little bit of time at Belloc, um, because we had a manager on, on staff, uh, on, like, on site every day there. Um, Cure was a little bit looser. It was just more so that there were some people who were sort of like helping to maintain the culture that, you know, Kirk and Neil had created at Cure, uh, as they were stepping away a little bit to get this other project off the ground. So, um, so yeah, when Belloc opened, I was kind of just there to, manage and make sure that guests were happy and things like that. And then at Cure, I was helping more with like, Turk and I were doing more with like um, developing the menu and uh, uh, managing the apprentices and, and things like that. Belloc kind of, it was an, it was an interesting project. It was an ambitious project, but it didn't really seem to resonate and it, it didn't really seem to find its audience. Um, and, and, and perhaps put some of that is, is uh, like the relationship with the hotel never really, uh, panned out the way it was supposed to, but can you speak to some of why Belloc is not there anymore? From from somebody who was in the, uh, there at the inception and, and through the with Cure Code at its at its closing as well. Well, I I remember we had been open about a week. Belloc had been open about a week, and I was setting up for a shift at Cure, and the phone rings, and I answered it, and it was a, a Canadian journalist who we had a cobbler on the menu at Cure at the time. He was like, "Can I can I talk to you guys about?" cobblers i think they're going to be the next big thing and we're like oh well we actually just opened up a cobbler bar (laughs) (laughs) um but i think yeah i mean it it was it was a number of factors i think like one was that section of the cbd was a little bit weird then i mean i think if it were to open there now it'd be much better received just because there's so many more 
businesses that are similar to it in that area now. You're like, you didn't have barrel proof at that time. Uh, you didn't have compare Le Pan. Um, you had nice restaurants, but not nowhere that really did cocktails in a big mm. way. Um, and I think that definitely contributed to it a little bit. Um, we did have like a lot, I mean, like Belloc did well. We did have a lot of great regulars and a lot of people who really enjoyed it. And it did, it was a stop on many people's list. Like one of my favorite regulars of all times, this gentleman, Heath Hutto. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I love Heath. Heath. Yeah. Heath. Heath was my original fake ID. <laughs> <laughs> you do kind of look like Heath. Yeah. For the right angle, totally. I mean, uh, yeah, I forgot you guys went to school together, right? No, no, no. He went to school with a friend of mine in Oregon. And okay. I, I was bumming around the year uh, after high school and just crashed on her couch a bunch and, and, and bought his ID. <laughs> I did not. He, I, I paid him $20 to drop it somewhere. Yeah, and then talking picked about it up off the ground. Talking about all the illegal activities on yeah. the show. Well, there's probably a statute of limitations there. That was like 16 years ago. Yeah. But like on our, uh, the last night the Belloc was open, he flew into town just to, you know, have one more cop. Oh, yeah. There. Oh my gosh, I fell off a bar stool that night. <laughs> I, went, I went to Belloc's last night. I showed up, um, I was... I was opening Seaworthy. Is that right? That doesn't seem to match up. That sounds. It could have been because this was three years ago. No, Seaworthy or, was like two years maybe ago. Maybe it was two years ago. Yeah, yeah, because it was. Um, it closed within about a month of Cafe on reopening. Yeah. Uh, this this was my night. I showed up with whomever I was working with at the time, and we had already had some drinks and. Uh, uh, I was starving, so I ordered Papa John's pizza. So a pizza guy rolls in. I order like four pizzas because like everybody's gonna want pizza in the bar. So Ugh, and they did. Enough. It was solid. I mean, like they got pizza for everybody. And uh, I mean, the drinks were uh, flowing. And then uh, I know I was drunk, but I fell off a bar stool. And it was a hard concrete floor that was there. But I wasn't that drunk. I wasn't like fall like literally fall over. Like it was just an accident. But then I was like, oh no, I, I've, I've Coming across drunker than I really am. <laughs> and then Belloc was closed forever. <laughs> We're going to jump into our mid-show break and get behind the bar. I think Cole's going to make a drink for us this week. What? Yeah, so uh, we'll All be right. right back with that and with our guest. All right. I've hopped behind the bar here on Around with Stephen Cole. We do our little interstitial drink segment. I'm going to be making a drink called the Tiburon. It's a Spanish word means shark. This is a drink. It's on the same template as the Bowden, which is one of our signature cocktails here at 12 Mile Limit. Uh, and I'm going to start off with a half ounce of lime juice. Hmm. So I got that going in. Tiburon. Doesn't sound as threatening as shark for some reason. Yeah, it's got that hard K sound, I guess, is a, is a, is a thing there. Shark. Like shark. It sounds sharp, like yeah. a tooth of a shark. Yeah. But if you don't think tiburon, tiburon. You got to just tiburon. say it like that, tiburon. 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 We're just going to say that for the rest. Uh, screw the drink. We're just going to say Just walk tiburon. behind people and whisper in their ear, Tiburon. It <laughs> sounds like a pretty good assassin's name. Uh, ooh, uh, El yeah. Tiburon. El Tiburon. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So we got a half ounce of lime. We got a three-quarter ounce of honey syrup. I do a two-to-one ratio to dilute a uh, local honey with warm water to make it a little bit more mixable. Mm-hmm. So we got, there we go, three-quarter ounce of that. And then we're going to do... Uh, an ounce and a half of Reposado Tequila, our benevolent sponsor brand, Coralejo Tequila, in this case. Thank you very much for the money. An ounce and a half there. And then just one quick dash of Tabasco. Tabasco is one of those great things. It, just, it tastes really good. I originally started dabbling with it in cocktails as much because I wanted a little bit more acidity in my cocktails, and I wanted to find some way of doing that that wasn't citrus-based. And there's a nice, uh, nice uh, vinegary backbone to Tabasco 
Uh, it's also barrel aged, which I didn't re- realize at the time. But it's yeah. really it's a it's a it's a very well crafted product, and you can use it sort of similarly to bitters. A little bit goes a long way, but a little dash of Tabasco in an other is a drink that doesn't have to be a savory drink overall, but it can really really heighten that experience. Yeah, and something it's a chili pepper shrub when it comes down to it, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. All right, so then we can put a little ice in there and give it a good old shake. Uh, we're gonna be straining this into a rocks glass that I've already pre-salted half the rim of. I like doing a, the half salt rim so you can kind of opt in. Like, do you want a little salt in this one? Do you want a not a little salt? You can kind of taste it both ways. Hmm. And uh, do you, how, how do you do it? When you do a margarita, do you Always default do that. to salt? Yeah, I, oh, I, my default is salt, um, but I do like doing about a quarter rim of quarter salt, rim. like a, a heavy quarter rim. Heavy so that, quarter rim. Okay. So that, like, you know, people can kind of modify where they are. Like, I think it's a little presumptuous to be like, I'm going to throw a pinch of salt in that. I understand to me the drink will always taste better with a little bit of salt, but that is not always to some people's taste. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's about giving the customer the best experience possible. That's true. All right, and then we're going to finish that uh, with some fresh ice on top, and you're basically ready to go. Put a little lime wedge on it, and then you got a, got a Tiburon there. Delicious. It is a quality drink. Excellent. Let's grab this head back out to the studio, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll uh, get on with our second half of our show. All righty. And we're back with Around and Stephen Cole. Drinks in hand. Uh, thank you so much, Cole, for this delicious cocktail. Once again, I'm Stevie Mata. Hey, it's D. Cole Newton. And uh, we're here with our guest... Nick Dietrich. Yeah. Nick Dietrich. All right. So uh, if memory serves me correctly, we were just talking about how Belloc, uh, we were talking about me falling off a bar stool over <laughs> Belloc. Last but night at Belloc. You were definitely long gone from there, and uh, you had, at that point, moved on and were running Cane and Table. Yeah. Um, I mean, Belloc was still, I we, well, so we um, purchased Pravda, which was a uh, well-loved um, vodka and absinthe, uh, Soviet themed bar on Lower Decatur. Um, there, the owners there just were ready to get out of the business. They had other ventures that were not in the industry and didn't really have time to run a bar anymore. So it became a great opportunity for us. Um, because I had been like, even from the start at Cure, I'd become interested in tiki drinks and, um, had been working on wanting to open up a tiki bar in the Bywater for some time. Um, and then, Beach Bumberry moved to town. I was like, well, I can't do tiki now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Nick. <laughs> um, but uh, so then I uh, it pivoted and we got the space and um, it became apparent that it was not going to be a tiki bar. Um, and so uh, I came up with a, you know, when you're in doubt, make something up. So I came up with a term called proto tiki, um, which is essentially um, everything um, – Caribbean and rum oriented uh, that sort of like led up to the tiki movement kicking off. You did a great job embracing that term too, because you know, completely your invention of this proto tiki thing, but it is definitely dropped into the cocktail nerd vernacular. Like I've been to other cities and people be like, Oh, this is kind of a proto tiki expression. <laughs> Just like, it's like, Oh, you've been to cannon table. Eh? <laughs> well, it is great because it's one of those terms that you hear and you just intuitively understand the meaning. Like you made up a word that just made sense to people. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is a concept that is like, Oh, proto tiki. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I did was just basically take a whole umbrella of drinks that didn't really need to be categorized and built a category for them. <laughs> <laughs> Smart. Yeah. Um, so yeah, talk about. Do you want to talk about that experience a little bit? You could, this was your. This was your first. Uh, this, you were a, the managing partner there, right? Is that yeah. The best way to describe it. Yeah. So uh, Kirko owns it, and you were basically earning your share of ownership. Yeah. Of Game I, Table I, by I, managing. I put in equity as well. Um, so it was. It was a pretty. Uh, I mean, it was a partnership. So 
um, going in there, you know, I definitely had the benefit of Kirk and Neil uh, and their operating experience. Um, and, you know, we had known that it was going to happen for several months. Um, and even before that, Neil had expressed an interest in, in wanting to work with me on that project, which was an unnamed Tiki project at that point. Um, and so then um, we were able to purchase Pravda, which was, you know, kind of a whirlwind. Ex- it wasn't a whirlwind. It was like a lot of waiting and waiting until it was like, okay, we're signing the papers today. Here are the keys. Open the doors tonight. Hmm. Um, so, like, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the transition there when you guys were Perestroika? Which yeah. I think was a pretty clever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, since it was Pravda and a Russian themed bar, um, what um, yeah, I decided to do was to name what the transition period Perestroika, which was also the transition period in Soviet Russia from USSR to modern day Russia. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was very rough at first because it was a well-loved bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, we did have, they had like a very diehard, uh, core group of regulars. Um, and so we kind of came in and didn't announce it at all and just basically came in and took out some of the furniture. Well, they, there was some furniture that they took with them. Um, and, uh, uh, but we came in and kind of like, pulled some stuff down and kind of like made the room like look a little bit more open. Uh, they had like a lot of tapestries and stuff like hanging in there uh, and band smoking right away. Um, mm. And so <laughs> that'll make some regulars super happy. <laughs> it did not. Yeah, it was, it did not go over well, but you know, it was uh, a necessary step for what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but yeah, Perestroika ran from uh, September of 2012 until the end of, uh, May 2013. So it was, it was a fairly lengthy period. Um, and, you know, um, we were going to make Cana Table a restaurant. And so we needed to, like, shake the dust off the restaurant that was, uh, or the kitchen that was there. So when it was Pravda, the kitchen was not functioning, right? It, it was and wasn't. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was kind of, um, on again, off again thing. And they, they would, they would have like pop ups in there and they ran like, they just made a dessert restaurant for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, they, they had been ready to get out for a while by the time we got in there. So it hadn't been functional oh my God. for a while. So, uh, I would have to say non, uh, extended period of time, non-functional kitchen in the French quarter horror show. <laughs> <laughs> it took, it took about three weeks. I mean, we were, cause we were open the whole time cause we didn't have like a lot of cash to get this place off the ground. Mm-hmm. So we had to open every night. So every day I was coming in there with some people to, pull out kitchen equipment and just like run through easy off oven cleaner. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so that took a while to get it uh, to a state where we could then bring in a staff. And so we, um, but we, we brought on Adam Biederman at that time to be a consultant because we were going to do the perestroika thing. So we brought him in to do like Eastern European style fare. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like pelmini, uh, brisket, um, and like, we had like river trout and a caviar sauce. Um, and it was also like, like I think the most expensive thing on the menu at that point was like 16 bucks. And it was like high quality food. Cause Adam, before he opened company burger in town, um, had been the first, uh, chef of, um, Holman and Finch in mm-hmm. Atlanta. Um, and so he had like fine dining chops that I think he was like eager to use at that point. Yeah. Um, and so we had a kitchen program like that and like um, a lot of Slavic beers and things like that. A lot of Croatian wines try to keep it Eastern European oriented until we uh, transitioned into Canon Table. All right. I do think there's a at the time and then I feel like I experienced a similar thing with, with the barrel proof. 
like I liked Pravda. I didn't go there enough that it was uh, to sustain it, apparently. <laughs> but it was one of the. I mean, it's always easier to to open a new bar in the existing location of a previous bar for zoning reasons, and there's a million other reasons why that why it's easier to to sort of just occupy that same space. But it also almost seems like a zero sum game sometimes. Like if in order to open Cane and Table. A bar, like in order to open a new bar that I like and legitimately enjoy, that another bar that I like had to close. And the same with like Barrel Proof goes in and, and Bridge Lounge goes away. Mm-hmm. I was like, I like Ooh. Bridge Lounge. I you Bridge you Lounge. like Bridge Lounge? I did. It was an interesting space. Oh man, you are in a minority there. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> I mean, the space is fine. You know what? That space is now a much better bar. Uh, I mean, I. I I go there more now, and I yeah. don't even drink anymore. <laughs> so yeah. maybe that's it says something. But it does seem like sometimes you're like you got to cannibalize the one bar for the next bar to come in. Yeah, um, but yeah, I guess and sometimes like I said, you know, like in this case too, it was a bar that was going to close, and yeah. so the they the owners wanted out, and we were able to give them that out, and yeah. then. You know, also doing Perestroika helped with not if we had opened came a table there right away, that would have been very rough because we would have. Like, I mean, one, for the uh, reasons you're saying as far as, like, getting a place open in an existing space, closing down and running into the issues that we found out later with construction would have held us up a great deal. And then also uh, it, it it was nice to have Perestroika as sort of, like, you know, an intermission uh, between, like, the bar that was there and then what we were going to open. It was, it was like, an easy come down for mm-hmm. some people. Mm. So um, Lower Decatur, like, <laughs> that's that's a tricky location. <laughs> It's, it's, I mean, it's, I love Lower Decatur. Like when I first moved here, I spent a lot of time on Lower Decatur at Molly's and like, um, at other places around there, like Halloween was like, I would always be on Lower Decatur. Um, and so it was like a place where I was already pretty familiar with it, mm-hmm. but yeah, it is, it's, it's, it's odd. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> you've got, uh, um, like it's, it's like one of the last like areas of the quarter that was like very commercial, but still very residential. Like I think at the time we were moving in, it was when a lot of service industry people still lived on lower Decatur. Mm, I mean, it's not that mm. way anymore, but at that time it was great because of that too. Yeah. Yeah. Real, real turnover over there. And like, and I don't know the last time I was on lower Decatur, I just kind of avoided at this point. Um, I was going to Santos for their, that Puerto Rico fundraiser they were, mm. they were doing. And, uh, me and one, uh, the servers at latitude, we were just walking down there and we almost got like, physically accosted by uh the, the typical lower decatur like fare and everything like that you know straight off the train backpacks yeah asking for cigarettes and everything like that and i i hate that i mean like you know like it's it's really really frustrating a little bit yeah. you know just to be like hey i'm just minding my own business like yeah. you know don't don't fucking bother me right now the french quarter has a lot of challenges in general mm-hmm. but like that street and that section of that street has some that are very particular to like lower decatur mm-hmm um, but yeah, like what you're saying, um, you know, with, with those folks, it was just like, you know, just don't just ask them nicely. And they're usually receptive. Mm-hmm. It was just like, Hey man, I'm just doing my job. Can you kind of like, there's a park right over there. Can you like chain your dog up there and play your banjo? <laughs> <laughs> your one string banjo. Yeah. <laughs> there's something as street kids, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's something about, I mean, a new Orleans lends itself to it. Cause it freezes very rarely here and people are just very generous and open. So I imagine you could do pretty well just, you know, doing the light busking and, and, a quarter of the friends I had freshman year wound up dropping out of school to either live at the top of a redwood tree or just bum around for a while. I was mm. like, you know what? That's I don't want to say that's a respectable life choice, but I get it. 
Yeah. Get it. Live in a barn for a while, whatever. We yeah. had uh, Natasha, who was uh, a bartender and then manager at Candy Table for a while. She she had sorry she had spent some time doing that, um, and before she stopped, I don't know. Really. <laughs> <laughs> she just uh, but yeah, I mean, she, she was, how romantic could it really be? Like she she had she called. Don't knock it till you try it. She was oh, like, no. yeah, she she would call herself a recovering crust lord. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I don't know. It's like uh, it's, it's it's just a thing. There's something Kerouacian about it. That's what I'm saying. Kerouac. <laughs> what this goes back to angsty seventeen year old pretension. I think. It's just like, <laughs> sure, it sounds like a great idea at that point, but at some point, it's like ah, you know, I'm ready for something new. I mean, on bad days though, when you're going to open up the bar and everything like that, or open up the restaurant, and you see like a, a group of those cats sitting around, you're like, I could be doing that. I could just drop these keys in the gutter right now and go join them. <laughs> it's a little romantic. All right, so King of the Table, that opened. Uh, then yada, 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 acclaim, awards, top ten lists, all the things. You were very successful. And then you left, and it was very surprising to a lot of people that you left. Uh, why? Um, well, I mean, it was... Um, it, at one point, it was to travel a little bit. Uh, I, w- I was also burnt out because, you know, Candy Table in the French Quarter, being a place that was open for as many hours a week as it was seven days a week for that long uh, r- was really a grind. Um, and so at one point, it just wasn't fun anymore. Um, and so that's when, uh, and about the same time, someone offered me uh, the opportunity to um, work in London. Um, and so I figured that this would be a good opportunity and one that I may not have again. Um, and so, um, yeah, so then, I mean, I started talking to them about that and, uh, told my business partners before, um, uh, making the, making the leap. Okay. And so you went, you went to London, you did that for a little while and you came back. And now for somebody who talks about being burnt out on opening a bar in the French quarter, <laughs> you gotta, you got some irons in the fire there. What yeah. you, what's you working on now? You yeah. want to tell a couple of, I mean, I, I imagine most of the listeners to this program are, are sufficiently in the know about the New Orleans cocktail community that they might have heard about some of these projects. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk about it? Sure. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I was burnt out and then spent most of the year just like, it was great in London because all I did was bartend and like hang out. Isn't it great? Just it going, was really like, nice. You're not running something and then you're just <laughs> yeah. bartending. It's like, this is nice. Yeah. Man. Yeah. And then I got back to New Orleans um, in uh, late September. And after about, after October, I was like, I need to do something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> doing um, nothing seems really attractive when you're busy all the time. Yeah. And then when you're doing it for like a month, it's like, I got to, I got to stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I had spoken to uh, Conrad Cantor, who um, is uh, my business partner in both of these uh, endeavors. Um, and, uh, the project every when was one that I had wanted to do for a, a long time, especially, uh, as I spent a little bit more time engaging with people like, uh, the proprietors, LLC guys who operate like, uh, the Walker Inn and death and co and things like that. And, and then also spending a lot of time in Scandinavia, uh, where they do a lot with like more modern techniques and things like that. Um, so what I wanted to do was, um, uh, to open everyone. And, uh, uh, so that's one place that we're working on right now. Okay. Um, let's talk about, okay. What, what is publicly not public knowledge about everyone is that it will have modernist techniques applied to traditional new Orleans cocktails that it will be inspired by 
metaphysics and late 19th century Britain. And, <laughs> when you say it like that. And, <laughs> right, right, right. right. And I, it's like, so like, I think a lot of the question, the question that people have about everyone is, Huh? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I know. And there were if I could do some of that interview over again, I probably would. <laughs> it was just like the I well the way it happened too was um uh you know some people from Imbibe reached out to me and they wanted to put um uh, me in the Imbibe seventy five issue and I was like great awesome I'd love to be in it and then like a week later they contacted me and was like well we need something to talk about he's <laughs> uh, back to just bartending yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and uh, and at that point like that was the only thing that was really like all everything was in line it was all coming so we ended up announcing it a lot earlier than we had anticipated mm. and when i talked about it i hadn't really talked about it much at all except with conrad my business partner and so it was really hard for me to like synthesize and it was with wayne too you know wayne mm-hmm. curtis who is a friend and so i was just like I, i'm gonna tell wayne everything and um and so uh i think i said a lot more so it was hard to make it's sound coherent in the like one page like pull out that he had room to write it in by like 240 words. Uh, well, now that we got like a good couple of minutes left, you yeah. want to you want to unpack it a little bit more? Yeah. So everyone, the term everyone, um, I came to. Well, I guess I'll talk about like what the the program will look like. Um, it's basically a like about New Orleans and about making excellent drinks um, and about offering a wider range of spirits uh, and cocktail options to people that come in. So the way the menu will be formatted is you'll come in and we'll have like a classic Sazerac with cognac or rye that's very dialed in. Um, And then uh, adjacent to that on the menu, we'll have something else that takes the same sort of like cocktail uh, structure as far as like aromatic profile, ingredient breakdown, and sort of flip them around a little bit. We're going to be using um, uh, Rotovap to do some um, some interesting things. We'll be doing a lot of like fat washing and, and things like that, but basically to offer something that is like, if you look at it in structure, it looks like a Sazerac, but it's completely different. Hmm. Um, and I came across the term every when, um, which is a metaphysical idea of looking at a place and seeing it at all points in time. So like the uh, looking at um, the Grand Canyon now and being in awe of it and also thinking of someone that looked at it 4,000 years ago and being in that same awe. And, you know, I think that like New Orleans through history has that same sort of like awe-inducing quality. Um, and so through cocktails, we're sort of going to play like on the here and now and the past um, and, and offer a lot like in, the, in those regards. All right. That does sound a little bit more cohesive than the than the paragraph. In him, for the for the listener, I haven't. I, I've kind of blocked it out in my head, so I'm moving my hands a lot to make sure I hit the points. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the advantage of radio. You didn't have to say that. I mean, you didn't have to tell people you're doing that. That's cool. Um, right on. And uh, it was just announced, I guess, last week. Um, there was a big uh, bombshell blockbuster announcement. Uh, you want to go into that project? Sure. Um, so. You know, in building, uh, in building Canaan Table and then running it, you know, it's Canaan Table's focus is on rum and rum as it's been experienced in New England, um, and the Caribbean and all points, uh, since the New World was discovered and rum was basically created. Well, I mean, in America at least. Um, and so in doing that, I started, uh, I, I was given the opportunity to visit Cuba a number of times. Um, and, uh, on many of those trips was also Chris Hanna and, this was something that we sort of like had talked about for a while. Um, it was more of like a pipe dream sort of scenario. Like 
we should open a Cuban bar in New Orleans and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, at BevCon this past year, we, we were talking about more and it's named for um, our friend Manolito, uh, who um, was a 20-year veteran of the Floridita who passed away tragically in a car accident last January. Um, and he was a guy who was like very instrumental in all of our experiences in Havana. I mean, he was... Uh, <clears throat> he was a guy that like taught me how to make a Florida daiquiri behind the bar and, and, um, and gave me like a lot of great advice on bartending and was just like really, really like excellent role model for, for Chris and I. Um, and so, um, when we got the opportunity, uh, to open up this place, um, you know, one thing that we wanted to do was to name it in honor of Manolito, who's meant so much to us and also to everyone that's met him in, in Havana and elsewhere. It's interesting. You're, you're partnering again. You, uh, Hannah's part of this project, but Conrad is part of both projects. And Conrad will be reoccupying the same space <laughs> that he was in when he was a partner at El Libre, which was also a, a Cuban uh, bar and restaurant. And I, I loved El Libre. I was one of those places that, that anytime I was in the quarter, just kind of bumming around, I was like, I need a, I need a, like a good cheap sandwich and some Cuban coffee. It was like, it was a go-to. Uh, my hope is that uh, Manolito is sufficiently approachable that it can be like a quick in and out spot in the same way. Cause it, the, the, the space, it seems like doesn't necessarily lend itself to like a high end bar. There's not, are you going to do any reno to make it? Uh, We're doing a significant amount of reno. Um, there, I mean, there were some things like the building codes have changed a lot in just the last year alone. So there was like a lot that we had to do for that. But, um, you know, there wasn't like a traditional bar in there. So we're building a bar in there, um, and updating some of the features, like adding some tile and things like that. Um, it will be, we're going to be eventually open 11 to 11 every day. Hmm. So, and, um, it will be very approachable. You know, it's, there is a, a segment of people that work in the French quarter, um, who have like day jobs, not just service industry, who don't, who need access to like quick and easy food. I mean, Felipe's does very well because of that. El Libre did very well because of that. So we're definitely going to cater to those people as well. Um, and that, I mean, part of that though is too, is just what a Cuban bar is. Um, like, you know, a Contenero runs a space that is meant to offer whatever its guest needs at that particular time. And so, you know, we'll do like soup and sandwich specials um, and make it so you can get in and out of there for lunch for like 12 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also for those who want to like, you know, saddle up to the bar and really dig in, we'll offer a lot for that person, too. Um, and I think El Libre is still going to do really well on Calhoun um, and uh, and do what they do. And I, I mean... Blake is Blake is a super nice guy and he's been incredibly helpful with like us getting into that space and, and continues to be right on. Um, yeah, I guess the only uh, we're about to run out of time here, but uh, this is more of a question that I'm interested in that I want to ask both of y'all. Um, I don't know if we've talked about it on the show, but uh, you're in the midst of two projects at the moment. Cole is in the midst of a project himself. Um, we can go into that later at a different uh, different yeah. episode but uh it's it's gonna be it's called uh the domino, domino. the domino the domino yeah it's called the domino. settled on using the article yes got it i think that's a good good call there yeah. and uh um i guess most the thing i'm most interested in at this point is you know we are you know above the uh, past the crest of a restaurant boom at the moment uh some people are saying bubble burst which is bullshit uh <laughs> retraction all this other stuff uh but y'all are coming in on a different wave at this point where there's been a lot of movement with people, and I think the hiring pool is very interesting in New Orleans at the moment. And we're talking about three bars that need, you know, 
you know, knowledgeable enough people like to come and work at them and everything like that. Uh, what are your thoughts on just the general labor pool at the moment that you will be hiring from? And do you have any ideas about like, you know, how you're going to approach that training all that other kind of stuff? I think for me, a like I said earlier in this program, uh, the, one of the things that we designed the program at 12 mile limit to do is to be very approachable. So we don't necessarily need to draw from a pool of particularly experienced cocktail bartenders. If we're building out a program that's accessible to people who have broad bartending experience, but not necessarily the cocktail background. So that expands our hiring pool a little bit. Also, as you mentioned, there's been a bit of a contraction in the new Orleans bar and restaurant scene. So I think there's a lot of talent out there that's being underutilized. So there are a lot of people right now that I think are looking for more interesting work than what is currently available. So mm. I think that that pool has gotten uh, bigger again. I think the point I would make on that is, um, and we talked about this a little bit earlier in the show, is that a lot of people have been moving from spot to spot. I think some people are going to be very gun shy about jumping to a brand new opening because there's so many people who went to go open like X hotel here or something like that there. I mean, there's always an adjustment period when you're going to open up a place. One, you're probably working for training wage when you first open up. And two, like, you're either you have to deal with that staff like balance kind of thing. Like, you know, you're probably going to be a little bit overstaffed to begin with. You don't know what days are going to be good days and things like that. So I think I think a lot of the pool that we know, I mean, the service industry here is so vast and we barely kind of scratch the surface or mingle with a lot of those people, those people, pardon me, <laughs> <laughs> that uh, um, that the people who are in our general vicinity, we kind of. uh you know, they're, I think they're going to be a little more gun shy to jump to a new opening at this point, just because there have been so many like kind of like shaky openings. Not saying that any of your projects are going to be shaking <laughs> openings, but I think people are a little more hesitant to be like, I'm going to leave and go do this or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think in my experiences with the, you know, several places that I've been involved with, either from like a partnership standpoint or just a management standpoint, um, I've, I've learned a lot. And the thing that I've taken away the most is that, you know, the, I mean, honestly, the employees, like your staff, are the central to to executing your vision um, and also to shaping like what that bar is going to look like. Because you know, once you kick the doors open, it's no longer yours; it belongs to everyone, True. and you have to make sure that you have good custodians of that, so that at least it continues to grow in a way that is good. And um, and I mean, with this project, you know, Connor and I align a lot on you know because we've been bartenders forever. And so we align a lot on what we think we should offer. So we're going to make it a, a good job where we can hire career professionals, mm -hmm. you know, people that aren't the kind who like want to hop around a lot, but like we want to build a place, you know, where we're going to offer enough benefits, um, profit sharing and things like that, where they want to settle in and be with us for several years. Um, and I think, I think that there's been a big generational change from when I started bartending to now where that, you know, a lot of a lot of people um, haven't really been able to find in New Orleans yet the kind of like home for uh, like uh, for for what they want to do with their career. Yeah. Um, and so that's like definitely paramount to what we're trying to build with Manolito first and then everyone. Yeah, that's a real endemic problem down here. I think it's a lack of like real restaurant groups down here. Like you'll see like in Chicago, how like a lot of people just find upward mobility and like more stable job environments because of that. Um, but yeah, we, we really are lacking that down here. People don't stick around for a long time and don't really move up with a lot of places. So that's really great to hear. That's a, that's an excellent goal. I think that's something that we could really, I mean, really use, you know, that's the kind of jobs that we need down here, right? We have been very fortunate at 12 mile to have 
pretty low turnover. I mean, the, 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 we do a decent shift pay, so the, the, the floor is high in terms of your earning. So even on a slow shift, you're, you're not walking out with less than 100 bucks total in, on, most, on most days. Um, and the, you can wear your own clothes. You can listen to your own music. You can put whatever specials on the board that day you want. So you can really take ownership of your own shift in a way. So I think that's one of the reasons it's been we've had low turnover is that it's, it's an easy and fun place to work, I hope. <laughs> so I've been told. <laughs> um, but that also means that there are a lot of people who have come, like people often say, hey, are you hiring? Are you? Like, people come to us and say that they want to work here. And we turn away a lot of qualified people. So there's already sort of a pool of like people who are interested in working at a 12-mile limit style bar. So having another way to bring those people in, I think it's going to be, it's going to be great. I'm looking forward to, to being able to offer more of those opportunities. Yeah. And I think that, that idea of ownership and being able to own your shifts and stuff like that is, is something that becomes increasingly important. Like I think now people want to be more involved in operations than they ever did when I first started bartending. And so allowing them the opportunity to be as involved in that as they want is something that I think is important for staff because if they feel like they're really a part of it, then it's it's easier for them to feel like they can shape its direction and be more comfortable with like their their role there. Mm-hmm. I think it's really easy for a, a work environment to go toxic fast if mm. if there's certain like doors that are never open to yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Also, the uh, second generation hires and things like that. I, I find that's like one of the hardest things for a, a restaurant or a bar is like you know when you've established a culture and then like all of a sudden you need to hire more people when yeah. there's new people come in it's just like yeah, it's like you got to do this the right way you haven't paid the dues that we've been like you haven't been up. in the shit man shut the fuck up <laughs> <laughs> just, let's do it anywho uh, we are just running out of time here on a round with Stephen Cole oh, uh, so uh, we always like to wrap up with parting shots um, this is a segment where we allow our guests to just reintroduce themselves and kind of give us the last little tidbit of knowledge to walk what's, away with what's that one last thing you want our listeners or dozens of listeners to know on your, on your way out the door here drink more rum ah, done right and who Party are you shots. again and well, so <laughs> yeah. who do you represent uh, uh my name is nick dietrich i'm opening up uh manolito and everyone in 2018 in new orleans and um yeah keep drinking rum and uh, keep coming to new orleans do you have uh, based on this interview it sounds like manolito is closer to opening than everyone manolito everyone is like a considerable construction endeavor so it won't be open till late 2018 do you have your location finalized the last time we chatted about this offline you were not at ready to announce we're not where yeah we're be. still not quite ready to announce um and we probably won't be till summer okay um and uh but uh, manolito is we're really pushing for the third week of march wow that's uh, wow when, when does this go up uh, the Wednesday. Okay, so in like <laughs> last, in two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> that is ambitious. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've had the keys there. I know since, production uh, on podcasts is really hard. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not talking about that. Uh-huh. Um, well, we've had the keys since uh, January first, so we've been we've been at work on it a lot already, and now we're you know floors are getting closed up and tiles in place, so we're getting really close. So yeah. All right. <laughs> so yeah, I guess uh, you know, Nick, I feel like. You're one of the people that's the the trajectory of your career has not been that far off from mine in a way that we we often like when we used to like run into each other at the Saint and just like right. compare notes about how terrible it is to <laughs> to run a bar and it's it's it, and then it was you kind of you you dropped off the radar to a certain extent to go you know travel the world and go bartend in london like, but now you're back and you're going to be opening two bars 
And I was like, oh, good. We're back on the same path. Yeah, right. It's nice exactly. to have you. So Cole was jealous of you, and now you're down to his level again. <laughs> or you were... Well, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> No, I think I think there's a there's a good group of good number of people that are kind of in that group. Like Liam is in there too. Mm, Yeah, Liam and Dana Victory. I also Mm -hmm. because Victory and Twelve Mile Limit opened up like a month apart from each other in in 2010. So we sort of measured our success against. No, I I remember when Twelve Mile opened. I was like, well, shit, if he can do it, I can do it. (laughs) (laughs) That is that's a business model right there. That asshole. Steve, you got any party shots for us? I think that covers everything up for me. A bunch of snark and everything like that. Looking forward to the new places open. Uh, I don't drink anymore, but you know, maybe I'll make an exception here and there to grab a decent rum. Uh, well, decent we, we will have a, uh, a non-alcoholic pina colada for Giuseppe called the Na Colada. Solid. <laughs> not a colada? No, not bringing that one back in. Okay. <laughs> right on. Um, anywho, I think that's a good, bla- good place to stop. My name is Steve Yamato. This is T. Cole Newton. And this has been Around with Stephen Cole. Thanks a lot, Nick, and y'all have a great week. Cheers. Theme music for Around with Stephen Cole is by Derek Freeman. Support for Around with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Thanks again to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. I can tell by your body, you've always been a hottie.